maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Our guest today is the journalist and author Janine DiGiovanni, whose work over the past 30 years has seen her report from the front lines on stories including the siege of Sarajevo and both the Bosnian and Rwandan genocides. A specialist in fields such as international law and security, she is senior fellow and professor at the Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and was recently awarded the American Academy of Arts and Letters' highest prize for nonfiction, The Blake Dodd, for her body of work. She's also the author of nine books, including 2016's Reflections on the Conflict in Syria, The Morning They Came for Us, and her latest book is The Vanishing, which returns to focus on that very region. It tells the story of Christian communities which are facing persecution and discrimination. Here's Dr. Lena Khatib, Director of Middle East and North Africa Program at Chatham House, with more. Janine Giovanni, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Lena. It's so nice to be here with you. I really enjoyed reading your book, If Enjoy is a Word... I can use because a lot of the stories in the book are actually quite, I would say, alarming. I mean, the title alone, The Vanishing. Yes, the book started out when I decided to write it. It, it came from a long 
history of working in the region with Christian communities. But it really came to a head during the 2014, the time of ISIS. And then what really pushed me into it is I had finished the field work and then COVID came. So actually when I sat down to write it and had my desk and my notebooks and my pencils and my pens, the world was gripped in this kind of sense of great uncertainty and fear, myself included. I don't think I've ever felt so frightened as I did in those first initial weeks of COVID. And it was all about facing the uncertain, which of course is what faith is about. And it somehow connected me to all of those people I had spoken to over the years, going back to 2003 and the invasion of the American troops in Iraq. And so in a strange kind of way, it really helped me. It changed the focus of the book. So as you know, it became much more personal and it became about my own journey into faith and and resilience. Because above all, I think the book is about resilience, how these ancient communities remain in their ancient lands when they have been through the centuries purged, subjugated. They've suffered plagues. They've suffered from armies who wanted to destroy them, yet no one ever has. But the thing that really struck me was speaking to various political scientists who do more quantitative research in the region, saying that given the numbers and how they're dwindling of Christians, especially in Iraq, that in 100 years time, they would be no more, which is a very disturbing thing. This is a major change, considering, as you remind people in your book, Christianity came from this region. And the region, whether we're talking Mesopotamia or Palestine, has so many sites that are pilgrimage destinations. There are sites that mean a lot to Christians around the world. It's not just about the people who come from the region. So if we're saying a community that is rooted in this region with sites linked to Christianity that cut across ethnicities and races and and nationalities are all at risk. This is really significant. No, it's massive. And it's also... I think the fact that they're they're in their ancestral lands and that they're caught between this terrible dilemma. While I was writing it, it was also the height of the Donald Trump years. So I was extremely sensitive to the fact that I did not want this to be a book that pitted Muslims against Christians. Because it would be too easy to say they're being driven out because Muslim extremism. They're being driven out by certain radical forces, but also by climate change, also by migration, also by economic forces, because they don't have the industry to keep the young people there. So that was a really tough battle because I knew the evangelical community in the U.S., who of course are linked to Trump, who of course are linked to the pro-Israel lobby, would seize this as an opportunity to say, Good Christians, good pious Christians are being driven out of the Holy Land by bad Muslims. So this was something that I really, really tried hard to grasp and to try to portray it. And more than anything, what I really set out to do was to give an oral history of people who might not be here in 100 years time to kind of maintain their stories, their tradition, their culture, because it is, as you know, so incredibly rich and vibrant and The mosaic of the Middle East would not be the same if they are not there. They add so much to the society. 
Absolutely. And one thing I liked a lot about your book is how you give these voices space to express themselves in their own words. And you don't just have Christian voices represented, you also have Muslim voices. You highlight how areas such as, let's say, Aleppo in Syria have been mixed for the longest time and, and how sometimes, you know, the stakeholders who want this, we can call it maybe multiculturalism or multi-religious kind of uh, co coexistence are both Muslim and Christian and, you know, from other faiths as well. I really wanted to highlight too that the misery of, let's say, Aleppo and Gaza, bombs don't distinguish between Christians and Muslims. The 11-day bombing in May, which was horrific, um, in Gaza, killed more than 260 people, 67 of them children. doesn't matter if they're Christian, Muslim, Baptist, they're human. So above all, especially when it came to the Gaza chapter, which was probably the most closed community, that was the hardest one for me to infiltrate. There's only 800 Christians left in Gaza, And I've worked in Gaza since the first intifada. I wasn't really aware of them. I mean, I knew, of course, in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, and in the Galilee, plenty of Palestinian Christians. But in Gaza itself, I hadn't realized the extent of the history. Of course, Gaza had been entirely Christian until the fourth century. And then the, the tradition of the desert saints and the Gnostic Gospels and St. Thomas So it, it led me down a road, a kind of mystic road. And as I was doing the research, because it, it took me four years of really heavy interviewing. I mean, I could say I started it in 2003. And that was when I was living in Baghdad before the invasion, 2002. And you remember those days. You never could get permission to travel outside of your Baghdad being watched by the Ministry of Information. But somehow I got permission to travel up to Mosul And I was heavily watched everywhere I went. I was, you know, I had my guy trailing me, taking notes. But that was my first experience of the Assyrian and the Chaldean communities. And what really struck me was their determination to cling, to stay, no matter what. But they were terrified. I mean, they knew that if Saddam fell, they didn't know what would come next. And there is this rather strange and possibly precarious agreement, semi-agreement that Christians have made with dictators. Saddam Hussein protected the Christians. Bashar al-Assad has protected the Christians. And Mubarak in Egypt protected the Christians. So the big fear is if these strong men fell, what would come next? Would it be the black flag? Would they be completely exterminated? And then, of course, we had 2014, the Islamic State. But when we say protecting the Christians, when that expression is used, at the same time, your book is very keen to highlight the reality of the protection that we're talking about, which is not really, even though on paper it says that Christian communities have the same rights as other communities in these countries, your book does highlight that There was discrimination, there was persecution, their situation wasn't really all that rosy. So maybe we can highlight some of this. I mean, at Chatham House, I'm right now working on a project on contentious politics that looks at cycles of mobilization over the years, especially since the Arab uprisings of 2011. 
And we know that Christians did take part in these uprisings across the region, despite, you know, the kind of framing of some of these Christians wanting the status quo because it's better than the unknown. But the Syrian opposition, the Egyptian activists do include Christians as well. So we have to understand why, because the way I see it, if their situation had been quite good, why would they be mobilizing? So maybe we can go through what are the realities, the everyday realities that these Christians lived under, under those dictators? It's really interesting because a Christian from Aleppo told me something which really surprised me. He said, you have to understand we Christians really enjoy the rule of law. It's extremely important to us that we know boundaries, that we know you can do this, you cannot do that. And under Bashar, in his case, we felt that there were rules. If we followed them, then we would be all right. We wouldn't go to prison. I think when the Arab Spring came, I think in in so many ways the Arab Spring toppled so much for people. Those first heady days in Tunis and people could see what happened, that they could actually drive out a dictator. And actually, you know, if you go back to Yugoslavia in 2000, a group of students ousted Slobodan Milosevic in, in a kind of bloodless coup d'etat. So I think looking back at history, there are ways that people can drive out dictators. And I think possibly the Christians who joined the demonstrations, and you're right, there were many, especially in Syria. The rallying call in Syria was, we want our freedom. They wanted to know that their vote actually mattered. And for 40 years under the Assad, no one's vote mattered. No one had a voice. So I think they got caught up in the heady realism of it. However, let's look at Aleppo. The siege of Aleppo. Aleppo finally fell in 2016 to uh, government forces aided by the Russians' bombing campaign, which was horrible. Many of those Christians were Armenian Christians who had already had this transgenerational trauma of their own genocide. So therefore, being driven out again, and many of them did leave. Some stayed, but very few to be driven out of their homeland again means that they would have to find another part of the world. The diaspora would be again spread even wider. So what were their conditions like? So each country I did, I chose them for very specific reasons. And I did not choose Lebanon. And many people say to me, why not Lebanon? Because where there are so many Christians, because Christianity in Lebanon is so much further assimilated than these other countries. Christians are very amalgamated into the political, the social, the economic sphere. They have their own issues, but they're not nearly as peripheral as Iraqi Christians, Egyptian Christians, Gazan Christians, and Syrian Christians. So let's look at Iraqis. After the fall of Saddam Hussein, I think they felt particularly vulnerable. Their villages, they were sandwiched between the insurgents, the Sunni insurgents, and the Kurds. So their land in the Nineveh Plain, where that many of them had been farmers, it had been a kind of breadbasket of Iraq, was suddenly very threatened. ISIS came June 2014. I was in Baghdad at the time. And it's, you know, when I take myself back to that moment, I'll never forget it. I was lying on my bed in my hotel. I was listening to the BBC and people were hysterical because ISIS did not come from nowhere. You and I knew that. We saw that as far back as 2012 in Syria. But people remain in their homes until the last possible moment. And this is something I've learned from 
many, many years of working with refugees, I always say to them, why did you wait? And they always basically say the same thing. We didn't think it would come to our home. We thought that it wouldn't affect us. We didn't think that war would come to our country. In the case of the Christians, it came very quickly. And ISIS went from village to village, burning, raiding, destroying the churches, trampling the crucifixes, and they moved north. The Christians moved north. Those who could got out to the diaspora where they have many relatives in America or uh, Canada or, or Scandinavian countries, the UK, wherever they could go. But those who cho- chose to remain ended up near Dohuk in camps or many of them were sleeping on the streets in Erbil and Ainkawa. I remember thousands of them sleeping underneath the statue of Our Lady in the middle of the square, seeking some kind of protection. So since then, repairing that kind of trauma has been, even though money has been poured into it, I think this sense that they are so vulnerable really needs to be recognized by the international community, which is why Pope Francis's visit last March was just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it meant a lot, and not just to Christians, it meant a lot to people in the region to feel they are not forgotten about. And I think it's heartening, uh, speaking of the post-visit, I've been following his uh, developing friendship with uh, Omar Mohammed from Mosul I, different from the Omar Mohammed you interview yeah. in your book, <laughs> who is from, from elsewhere. But um, the Pope is supportive of this initiative to revive Mosul and have it as a place that could be a flagship for uh, coexistence between different communities. I think this is inspiring for not just Christians, but everyone who believes in interfaith coexistence across the region. But can we really say that, I mean, important as, as this is, can we really say that foreign policy is also encouraging, not just for Christians, but coexistence in general, multiculturalism in general in the region? Absolutely not, especially not under the Trump regime. I mean, the Abraham Accords, which doesn't directly affect the Christians, but it does affect the region, were disastrous. And it is extraordinary how many right-wing Americans feel that it this brought peace to the Middle East. And they have no conception of how it alienated the Palestinians entirely from something that concerns their future. I think that American foreign policy right now, I'm a bit disappointed in President Biden. I'm, I mean, I'm ecstatic. We finally got rid of Trump. I'm worried he might come back in some incarnation, if it's not him, someone very much like him. I think that the U.S. has to have some kind of policy, especially in Northeast Syria. Some, first of all, Pope Francis's message was a message. It was a very clear message. We are watching we are seeing what is happening to you. You are not alone. I, I have this really beautiful memory, and I wrote about it in the book, of um, going to Mass in Mosul um, right before the invasion. And it was in that beautiful church, Syrian church. And I came inside, and people were praying and singing Aramaic. And Aramaic, the language of Christ, to me, is so moving. Someone said to me, it's very eerie. And I said, no, 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 it's profoundly emotional because it's an ancient language and it shows how ancient these people are. They're the descendants of the prophets. 
And even that should give us a sense of how they need to be protected. So let's be pragmatic. You're a political scientist. How can policy directly protect these people? So right now, the big worry, of course, is the Iranian militias and the Turkish airstrikes. And they're, we're talking about Iraq, the Iraqi Christians mm -hmm. now. Gaza is something else. Egypt something else. How can the U.S. do better? I say U.S., but let's say the Western, let's say the international community. How could we do better? How can we ensure that these endangered people are protected? You know, I'm going to ask you, what you, you run the entire Middle East division of Chatham House. Like, what, what would you do if you were speaking to President Biden and Boris Johnson? What would you put into place to protect them? Well, the thing is, for me, these communities do not require separate policies that are detached from what applies to the rest of their brethren who come from other communities. The issue is foreign policy towards the region in general. I think it's deeply flawed. I think, to be honest, personally, I look at the Obama years and I see false promises, a lot of good rhetoric that was not coupled with diplomacy or any kind of action that would transform this rhetoric into reality. So a lot of people, whether Christian or Muslim or secular or whatever, were disappointed. And then, of course, we had, as you mentioned, the Trump administration years, which were uh, a complete disaster in many ways, especially the unpredictability and the volatility that came with this uh, administration. And, and now with the Biden administration, I think a lot of people in the region have practically given up that the U.S. is ever going to develop policies that would benefit them. So I would say in general, if there is a strategy towards the Middle East, for example, let's say places like Syria or Iraq, let's first have policies that would resolve these conflicts that would bring real stabilization that is comprehensive. You need funding for that, something like the Marshall Plan, because otherwise, how did Europe uh, emerge from World War II? So we don't have a similar investment um, in the U.S. Not at all. And, and I think we're moving, the U.S. is moving. You know, I'm, I was born in America, but I left when I was very young. I returned in 2017 at the height of the Trump years. And I'm not saying this dramatically, but I really feel traumatized by what I saw because the America in my mind, the romanticism of America, the democracy, the freedom of speech was all wiped away by the hate rhetoric, by the racial inequality that was a level that I had, hadn't even seen since childhood, the civil rights movement. And most of all, the isolationism. You know, we're not really, it's not really politically correct for us to criticize President Obama. And looking back, of course, he was a miracle compared to what we have now. But he did not do much in the region. He did try to stand up to Netanyahu. And I think he was about the only president that did. But I think he kind of left a legacy. He left a door open for Trump to then move in and basically move towards the Abraham Accords, which have been disastrous. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. In the book, so... I'll talk a little bit about the book. In The Vanishing, I broke it down into four communities, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and Gaza. And over the overall themes was that they were all endangered. They were all in great, they were vulnerable to eradication. Climate change came in later. I mean, I had not realized the extent that Iraq was vulnerable. I think the UN gives it, it's the third most vulnerable country, 31% desert droughts, floods. But even worse, when I started looking into the farmlands in Nineveh, which had been a a great resource for many of the Christians, ISIS, when they left, had basically destroyed the irrigation. Then the people living along the great rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, also the Nile, they're in great danger of their livelihoods being completely disrupted. So I was in Gaza in August. And one thing that always strikes me about Gaza is the level of intellect and of education. Even the poorest people in the worst refugee camps send their kids, age four, to kindergarten. They tell them that, you know, the Israelis can close our borders, but they can't close our minds. And I get these young people who are just remarkable. And I think if we could give them outsourcing, if we could turn Gaza into a Chennai, for example, give our outsourcing, our banking to these people, if we built up their economy, if we took the yoke of oppression off their shoulders, Christians and Muslims, and we developed economies for them, then we give them actually a chance at independence, economic independence, which might eventually lead to peace. As long as they're economically so hindered, so trapped, so repressed, so subjugated, of course they're going to rebel. And whenever I have a discussion with an Israeli who says, but they're so full of hatred towards us. And I said, what would you do if you were born in a refugee camp? If you saw your father taken away in the middle of the night, if every opportunity you wanted was taken from you, if you were utterly powerless, how could you live with anything other than a desire to be free? So Gaza, the Gazan Christians, 800 of them, 
shrinking rapidly. They can't get, we're coming into the Christmas season. So they like to go to Bethlehem to be with their family. They can't get permits to go. Or worse, the Israelis will give them one. So that, which of course, you know, one member of the family isn't going to go. So Gaza suffers from many things. It's the economic situation. It's the restriction of movement. It's the bombing. The last bombing in May was absolutely disproportionate use of force. Um, Egypt. So Egypt is really interesting because depending on class, because you can get these very wealthy Christians, Christian cops in, let's say, Heliopolis in Cairo. And they go to the French Lycée and they have good jobs and they... They live more or less the way they like. But there are still laws enshrined in the Egyptian constitution which prevent Christians from holding high offices in government, military, and the military is an arm of the government. So in one way or another, they are still discriminated against. The marriage laws, the inheritance laws, the poor cops, those in Minya, have it much, much worse. Their churches are being burnt down. They're being firebombed. They're actively discriminated against, mocked, persecuted. What really strikes me is how they cling on. And when I was a little girl at Catholic school, we used to study the martyrs under the Roman times. And I couldn't grasp their courage, <laughs> how they'd be sent to the lion's den. I mean, and, and they, or how they would be tortured or how they would pray in catacombs, how they would retain their faith despite enormous obstacles. But these Christians that I'm writing about are doing the same thing, and yet they cling to it. They will not abandon it because it is such a huge part of their identity. So if they leave these Gazan Christians, these Iraqi Christians, and they go to Canada or the U.S., they're leaving their ancestral land, and they're leaving. They're also leaving their identity because they're Arabs. They are Arab Christians. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, using the lion's den as an analogy, I think is, is very powerful because I don't think people necessarily see it like that. The general framing of the Christians and other religious communities that are not Muslim in the region is to see them as minorities. Um, it's, it's kind of black and white in a way, to kind of just say minorities. Yeah. And it skews also the diversity within these communities. And that's one thing that uh, also you bring to life in the book, that yes, we're now you know saying this is kind of the general situation in which they live under, but they are also very diverse. So maybe can you just tell me what struck you the most about the diversity of the Christian communities within the countries that you went to? I think, you know, an Iraqi official said to me something which made so much sense to me. He just said, and he's a, he is a Shia, he said, without the Iraqi Christians, there is no Iraq. And in the days, literally like weeks before Saddam fell, I worked with a Jewish colleague, a journalist, who had set out to find the last Jews of Baghdad. Now, of course, the Jews of Baghdad were eradicated in the 50s and then the 70s. But there were a few families left, but living very under the radar. And my friend's mission was literally to find them because he, his family were Iraqi Jews who had been expulsed in the 50s, I think. 
So together, we went down these streets and we talked to people. And then finally, he found a building that had a Star of David over it. And little by little, it was detective work. He he found the family. Um, he celebrated, I think, a Shabbat dinner with them. And I remember thinking, how did they cling to this thing which is so important to them? And then I remember that many, many years ago, in the early 90s, I went to a part of Russia called Birobijan, which was before the state of Israel was founded in 1948, the Jewish homeland. It's a far corner of the far, what was the Soviet Union, literally on the Mongolian border. To get there, I had to fly to Korea, take a flight to Habarovsk, and then to take a two-day train into Siberia. And when I got there, there was this minute community of Jewish Russians speaking Yiddish. They still spoke Yiddish. Um, when you pulled into the train station, it had Hebrew letters, Hebrew and Russian. And I spent two weeks with these people. And that, I think, was my first kind of obsession with how minorities cling, how their faith, their religion, their their identity, their their presentation is so vital to remain. Um, at that time, the Jewish agency, which is basically the agency that tries to bring Ethiopians to Israel or Syrian Jews to Israel, was actively recruiting them. You know, come to Israel, beautiful weather, we give you everything. You know, why stay in this horrible place infested with mosquitoes and mud? But the few that were left stayed. So I think, Lena, my real interest. And the reason I wrote this book was to see why do they stay? Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be honest with you. If I was faced with ISIS or torture or my children being sold in a marketplace or living in my home with a huge N written over my door, Nazarene, or facing torture or the lion's den, I think I would go. I don't know if I would have the courage they had. So I really wanted to paint a picture in this book of tenacity, of determination, of resilience. And then it just happened that COVID hit. And I think COVID was very much about resilience as, as well. Our own individual resilience, our society's resilience, and what remains. So in the end, it was very strange. I mean, I really set out to write an academic book about Christians in the Middle East. And in the end, it became a kind of internal journey of my own faith and my own fear and my own resilience. But I felt it brought the whole issue to life more vividly this way, because it was very interesting to read about your journey, but also the journey of, of the other people you talk about in the book. And one of the things that is very important to highlight is that unlike many people I come across, certainly in, in, in my field of work, who kind of parachute in and out of the region for a few days and then claim to be experts. Um, you have been working on this region for decades and you've lived there and you have returned many times to the places that you write about. So you've had the opportunity to be there, to be embedded for a long period of time and observe changes firsthand. So w whether we're talking uh, Iraq or Palestine or other places, what has been the most significant shift for the better or worse, that you think people should kind of pay attention to? I'd say it's the lack of shift in Palestine. Mm. 
I mean, to me, this is the greatest tragedy because I remember being a very young woman, very naive, basically my first trips to the Middle East 30, 31 years ago. And it was the first intifada. It really changed my life because I wanted to be an academic. I never wanted to be a journalist. It was never my intention. And by the way, I've never been that kind of reporter who I admire, but I'm not who can, you know, really stick a microphone in someone's face and kind of get a, a scoop. That's not my thing. I like to sit with people for a really long time, months, years, if I can, and let them tell their story. It's not my story to tell. It's their story. So I'm just a kind of vessel. But the greatest change, I would say, is the lack of change in Palestine. In fact, worse. This last trip to Gaza, and I've been to Gaza dozens of times, I've never seen it so bad. The humanitarian situation, I mean, the UN said 10 years ago, by 2020, Gaza will be unlivable. It's 2021. We're almost 2022. What really frightens me is the the complacency. You know, even the liberal Israelis who are really fighting people like Betselem and Gishan, people that are really struggling to bring change, they're tired. They've been working for so hard and there has been zero, if not anything, it's worse. The U.S. has pulled out of any kind of peace negotiations. I mean, Obama was basically the last of it. Then we had Jared Kushner, that great Middle East expert, I fear that Biden, you know, he's directed by Kamala Harris. Of course, Kamala Harris gave a keynote speech at APAC, the, the biggest Jewish lobby in America. Her husband is, is a, a, you know, very pro-Zionist. So I think he's taking his direction from her. So I don't think anything will happen in that area. Iraq breaks my heart because in the Saddam days, when I first started working there, there was this climate of intense fear. And you remember that. I mean, people were afraid to do anything. I remember the day Saddam fell, my my friend that I worked with, um, I remember we went to get my satellite phone. They used to seal it with sealing wax. And and the the man, the Mukhubarat who had opened it for me, he wasn't there. He had run away to Damascus, as a lot of the Baathists did. But she said, I said, Saddam's gone. You're free. And she said, oh, no, no, no. There are drones. She didn't say drones. She said planes up in the sky with listening devices. So we still have to be careful. This is a highly intelligent woman. I think that just shows how deep the fear was. Syria, the world's forgotten the war. There is still a war going on. Bashar has won, let's face it. Militarily. Militarily. I mean, I lived through the war in Bosnia. Another tragedy, another podcast we could discuss. You know, Bosnia is about to blow up again because when wars don't end properly, well, no war ends properly. When it ends as unfairly as Bosnia did with no transitional justice and no kind of peace for the victims of the genocide, no recognition of it, then inevitably it would be bound to come back, and it is now. So Lebanon, I'm so worried about Lebanon, and I'm so worried about Egypt. General Sisi is terrifying. I'm worried about the Gulf countries capitulating to Israel. So I guess my answer is, Instead of a change, I see we've gone backwards in the 30 years I've been working there. And on top of it, from what I can see, some of the ruling dictators and others in the region seem to be using the Christians or the Jews to present themselves in a very positive way to the international community at large. For example, Bashar al-Assad in Syria hosted some Syrian Jews. (laughs) 
Yes. Um, in Egypt, we have proclamations about embracing uh, interfaith dialogue and diversity with the current presidency also talking about the Christians in a kind of positive way. Something that struck me that you highlight in your book is the wrapping of churches in the Egyptian flag. Yes. And, and I think, you know, the position then that those Egyptian cops are in, and again, I put myself in their shoes. It's not my job to, to criticize them or to condemn them. I just think, what would I do if I was them? If I felt that slowly this way of life was coming to an end. And Egypt, again, like the socioeconomic conditions are so different because I was with very wealthy Christians who said to me, look, let me be frank with you. I, I speak four languages. I went to the French lycée. My family has money. We own factories. Yes, okay, I feel different, but I'm fine. If everything goes wrong, I can move to France. The poor who really, you know, whose, whose churches are burnt down while they're in them, who are beaten on their way to school, who are deprived of, of, of their, their faith. And in a strange kind of way, they were the more pious. They were the ones who really felt that the more they were pushed to give up who they were, the more they clung to it, the more they said, no, I'm going to mass. And they would build churches in shop fronts. It was incredible, just like a little store, a bodega. You know, they would fill with a crucifix and some holy oil and some incense, and that was a church to them. And they, to me, feel like, in a sense, the real descendants of Christ. Yeah, and they're going through the struggles that have unfortunately been part of humanity for thousands of years. And yes, I mean, the outlook for the whole region, as you point out, looks really, really gloomy right now. But at the same time, you want to highlight resilience. These people are trying their best not to leave, even though the prediction is that they will probably leave in a hundred years' time, uh, vanish somewhere else, uh, changing the whole landscape of the Middle East. I mean, you know, this is really significant. And that's why I was starting with the title of your book, which is really very powerful, The Vanishing. It's, a, it's for me, a rallying call for the world to pay attention. So a foreign policy, as we were just saying, is not delivering. If the dynamics in the region lead us to, unfortunately, a rather gloomy scenario, we have the Pope, you know, sending a bright message that is that is very positive. However, that is not enough. Is there anything that can be done, in your opinion? Communities, Christian communities around the world. Um, the evangelical church in America, as you know, is extremely powerful and unfortunately linked to the kind of Trump right-wing pro-Israel. When I say pro-Israel, I mean the settler movement. I don't mean, um, we agree the, uh, the state of Israel deserves to exist, but what I don't agree with is the encroachment of land and, and the, the subjugation and lack of human rights for Palestinians. But I think the Christian communities around the world should be propping up these vulnerable people. France, is a Catholic country. Spain is a Catholic country. Italy is a Catholic country. They can all not only raise awareness. So the first step, really, we have to raise awareness. So many people aren't aware of this. I gave my book to my mother's priest in a very small Catholic community. He wrote to me and said, thank you for this. I knew about our Catholic brethren, our Christian brethren in Iraq, but I had no idea how bad it was. Now, you and I are in the middle of our Middle East bubble. 
So we're aware of every minutia that happens. And I tend to think that everyone else is as well. But look at the news. When did we last hear news about Lebanon? When did we last hear news about Gaza? When I went in August, my friend said to me, you're the first journalist that's been here in, in months. Papers don't want it. Newspapers bury it in the back pages. Television news, it doesn't get any coverage. So I think our first step is we need to bring awareness of this. Second, we need support from Christian communities around the world. They have to band together to support their brethren. And third, I think we need more stringent policies from Western governments to protect them. And I, you know, I so agree with you. I think the Pope, I think he's been just absolutely extraordinary. And I think he can send a very strong message. And along with that, maybe other interfaith leaders, other imams, other rabbis, you know, basically saying these are vulnerable people. It's almost like something that an anthropologist would do if these are the last tribesmen in an island in the South Pacific. You would want to preserve their ways, their language, their culture. But these Christians are the, this is the birthplace of Christ. It's the land of the apostles. It's where the prophets walked. It is so powerful. And even I say to my friends who aren't religious at all, when I'm in Jerusalem, in the Christian quarter, I feel such a profound sense of history and of just the earth that I'm walking on, how ancient it is, how sacred it is, how holy it is. So I really think all of us have this obligation to protect them. Absolutely. And would you say your book is targeted at those people who may not necessarily know, but who could do something primarily? Is this your your main target audience? Yes. It's not for us. I mean, you know, Middle East experts look at something and say, well, why didn't you? I didn't write it for you and I. I wrote it as an oral history. And in fact, when I got the Guggenheim, they said to me, we are giving you this because you are writing about a people. You are writing a document which will last 100 years. So my purpose in writing this book is to take these stories, to collect them and to bring them to life for people who don't know about Christians in the Middle East. And so that we cannot let them disappear, so that they will never vanish. Janine Giovanni, thank you so much for this. Uh, Janine's book is called The Vanishing, The Twilight of Christianity in the Middle East. And it is out now from Bloomsbury Books. And as she said, highly accessible. And anyone who <laughs> does not necessarily know much about the Middle East can read it and enjoy the content and learn a lot from it and hopefully use it to do something good for the region's communities. I've been Lina Khatib and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? 
To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.